You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Terry O'Dean, who is a professor at UC Berkeley Haas School of Business, and he is an expert in the area of behavioral finance. And although he hasn't written a book yet, in spite of the fact that people like me are pestering him to write a book, he's written a whole slew of articles, some of which are very technical and some of which are super readable. The super latest one is on Robinhood, but you've got this really nice survey about individual investor behavior, which I really liked, which is available up on your website. So welcome, Terry. Thanks. Glad to be here. So you study in individual investor behavior, and historically, in the area of behavioral finance, there's been a lot of studies around professional investors, or even before behavioral finance. So if you think, you know, go all the way back to Jensen's studies in the 60s and 70s, he was trying to figure out, is there any way to beat the market? And so he was looking at mutual funds. And he came to the conclusion that these active investors, mutual fund investors, generally lag the market, both pre and post fees. And so that was sort of the origins really of the indexing business, right? Were these studies. And every single finance professor that you meet on the planet will tell you invest in the index, but they didn't really give a whole lot of attention to individual investor behavior, kind of small retail investor behavior. In part, I think because the the data was kind of hard to come by and you were really the first to turn a lens onto individual investors to figure out what makes them tick, how do they perform and so forth. What kind of drew you to that and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about your unusual interdisciplinary background and unusual educational path in a bit. But what kind of drew you to study individual investors? All right. Well, we can, as you say, talk about how I ended up in a PhD program in finance. But I started the program in finance with the intention of doing behavioral finance. I had studied with Danny Kahneman as an undergraduate at UC Berkeley, and I wanted to the type of research he had done with Amos Tversky to finance. It's basically acknowledging that people are not hyper-rational when it comes to making decisions, even when it comes to money. So I looked at individuals. Actually, it wasn't that I was primarily interested in individuals. I thought institutional investors, most of them are human. They have human biases. However, they've had more opportunity to learn. And I didn't know how much learning had or hadn't taken place, but I thought, Well, individuals are far less likely to have had the opportunity to learn that they are behaving suboptimally, that their biases are causing them to make mistakes. The other reason that I wanted to look at individual investors is because I wanted to initially avoid conflating behavioral biases and agency issues. And what I mean by that is that individual investors, especially at a discount brokerage firm, and I got my initial data sets from a discount brokerage firm, are making decisions for themselves. At the time, this firm did not provide financial advisors and advice that's changed. But when I got my data set, the individuals made their own decisions. So it was relatively straightforward to say, this is a person making a financial decision that is going to directly affect his or her wealth. It's a principle, what we call principle making decision for principle. Unlike what sometimes referred to as a principal agent relationship, you might have a financial advisor recommending something to an individual, but the advisor might 
be influenced by some of his or her own either professional or financial concerns. The advisor might say, well, I think this particular fund, while not really better than that fund, pays me a higher commission. That certainly has influenced more than one piece of financial advice. And it gets even more complex for institutional investors. So if you see a money manager making a certain decision, then you have to think, well, the money manager is in a position where usually he or she is trying to get ahead, increase his or her compensation, which if the money manager is in a typical situation means increasing the number of people who come into that fund, the sort of assets under management. The money manager may be trying to get promoted to a bigger fund, which means impressing the people higher in the firm. The firm is an agent acting for the clients. The clients could be institutional. The clients could be retail investors at a mutual fund. It all gets very complicated. And so if you see, for example, one of the first things I looked at was excessive trading. The very first paper I wrote as part of my dissertation was a theoretical paper. It's just pure theory, and it took existing models of how traders, people in financial markets, make decisions in an environment where there's information, noisy information. And the change I made to these models was instead of assuming that the economic agents always know exactly how good their information is, I assumed that these agents were overconfident overconfident in the sense that they thought their information was better on average than it actually was, which would be analogous to thinking they were better at analyzing information than they actually were. So I took a couple of existing models, plugged in this single assumption that people thought their information was better than it was, and a, a bunch of stuff came out of it. You see that people trade more when they think they know more than they do. They tend to earn less. They tend to diversify less. So their expected utility goes down or their earnings go down. So when I got data from a discount brokerage firm, one of the first papers that I wrote tested to see whether people were trading more than they should. I didn't know of a book where you could look up how much should a person be trading. However, there's a fair amount of reason to suspect that a lot of the trading that was going on was speculative. It wasn't being made for fundamental reasons like I'm buying stock now because I'm young and I'm saving or I'm selling stock now because I'm older and I'm, I'm now starting to spend some of my savings or I'm rebalancing my portfolio. In fact, one thing I looked at that really surprised me is I looked at trading activity on the New York Stock Exchange going back to 1900 up to when I was writing the paper, which is in the early 90s, early to mid 90s, I guess, mid 90s. And turnover on the stock exchange was the highest at the beginning of the century, which surprised me. It's extremely high. And it stayed up and down pretty high up until the Depression. Then it went down a lot. It bottomed out during World War II, when obviously a lot of the people who would have been trading were elsewhere. They were you know, overseas fighting, and the people who were home seemed to have other things to occupy their attention. So turnover dropped below 10% in, I think it was 1943. And then during the 50s and 60s, it hovered in the 15, 20% range. Then it started to go up, and by the into the 90s, in fact, by the late 90s, turnover was back up at 100% or so. And I thought, well, the need to rebalance 
the need to take money out because you have to pay your daughter's tuition, the need to put money in because you're saving every month, that shouldn't change by a factor of five or six over a couple of dozen years. But the desire to speculate, that probably does change. So in any case, I looked at the data and I found that these individuals were trading too much. And they were trading too much in one simple sense. I said to myself, okay, I don't know just how much people should be trading. But on average, when you're trading, if you're trading for a speculative reason, if you're trading to improve performance, you would like the stocks you purchased to go on to outperform the stocks you sold by enough to cover your transactions costs. If you're not hitting that benchmark on average, you should probably be doing what many financial advisors have suggested, which is this buy and hold. What I found, and this surprised me, it's actually I think the only real surprise I've gotten when doing empirical work, which is that the stocks these investors were buying were on average underperforming the ones they had just sold even before subtracting out transactions costs. So they were trading too much. Now, to get back to the original question, why look at individuals? Well, if I had found that institutional investors were trading too much, people would have said, well, that's an agency issue. In fact, there was already a theoretical paper that had said, if there are money managers who have skill and there are money managers who don't have skill and the money managers with skill trade routinely to take advantage of their information and their skill, then the other money managers who know they shouldn't be doing anything because they don't know anything are going to trade so that clients can't just look at the trading and say, oh, this person has skill and this one doesn't. So that was a reason to look at individuals. The other reason to look at individuals is, as you point out, they had been basically ignored. When I started taking classes in finance, one of the things I realized is everything I'm learning here is going to be useful for a professional in finance. I took corporate finance, I learned about corporate taxes, about structure, about how much the company should be leveraged. I took investments. Investments was really oriented towards running a large portfolio, trying to assess performance. A lot of work had been done on ass assessing performance. By the way, Jensen's early work that said that professional managers underperform, that's somewhat controversial if you ignore fees. Mm -hmm. I don't think there are many studies that show that institutional investors outperform as a group after subtracting out fees, but there are some that show that they may do well for fees. In fact, I've written a paper, not U.S. data, but I wrote a paper with some colleagues where we looked at every single trader in Taiwan and we compared the performance of individual investors as a group to institutional investors as a group. And at that time... In Taiwan, the institutional investors were definitely beating the market as a group. Whether they passed that outperformance on to their clients after charging their clients' fees is another question. So the big explosion in finance when I was a PhD student was around things like derivatives pricing, taking the Black-Scholes model and the binomial pricing model and starting to extend them to a wide range of products, basically financial engineering, using these tools to create new financial products. And that's all fine and good, but it wasn't doing much for individuals. And at the time, I thought maybe finance should do something for uh, individual investors, for what I call more ordinary people. 
Well, now that we know more about individuals, it's not clear whether this is benefiting the individuals more than it's benefiting the people who uh, can exploit those individuals. I think your research has suggested all sorts of ways that institutions can exploit the propensities of, of individuals. Absolutely. So when I've taught behavioral finance, as I know you teach, I used to teach it, and I would say in one of the first classes, I say, we're going to learn things here about people's behavior in financial markets and financial settings. And you may choose to take what you learn here and improve your own decision-making. You may choose to take what you learn here and go on to create products or policies that improve outcomes for households, for individual investors. Or you might take what you learn here and use it to take advantage of households. Create Robin Hood. I didn't say that. I'm not the one who <laughs> right. said that so far. Yeah, that's the same in marketing, isn't it, Greg? What you learn in marketing, there's a lot of knowledge in this world that can be used for a lot of different purposes, to help people or to help yourself. And, you know, if you're clever, you can come up with something to do in your life that helps others and helps yourself. But that's a constraint. If we go back to this idea of behavioral finance in the early days, you said you studied under Danny Kahneman. And, you know, we also heard from Don Moore. And it's easy to understand how things like overconfidence can hurt people in their ordinary life, right? You know, you're carrying a knife around or you're riding your bicycle down a cliff or something like that. But the financial markets were supposed to be the one place where you can't really fall on your knife because the markets are efficient. And so no matter how misguided you are and no matter how stupid you are, you can't impact the prices. At least that was the idea. So this was sort of the, the framework that early behavioral finance people had to work with. And so, so although, yes, you may wind up trading too much in a world with transaction costs, or maybe you'll be under-diversified because you fail to understand modern portfolio theory, but the finding that, that you would systematically be making the wrong trades because the, the markets weren't priced in a way that reflect perfect market efficiency, that I think is pretty important. And it says something about the markets. The early behavioral finance folks started to make these points. How did this impact the way in which we, we view markets generally and the respect that we have for efficiency? I mean, has the mainstream view of efficient markets been impacted or is, is behavioral finance still kind of a fringe discipline in your view? Well, I'm not sure those are necessarily the either or. So efficient markets, a strong belief in efficient markets or a strong belief in strong market efficiency was, in my opinion, more of a faith than a science. And once people, smart people have a faith, they do a pretty good job of defending it. That I think the issue is markets vary in efficiency. And it's also not necessarily the case that you can easily make money just because you recognize that a market is inefficient. I think in terms of weakening the faith in market efficiency, behavioral finance chipped away at it. In fact, one might say prior to behavioral finance, in the sense of really getting down to the psychology of decision-making and how that affects investor behavior, there were several papers in the 80s, literature sometimes referred to as the anomaly literature. Mm -hmm. These were papers that showed anomalies in financial markets, things that were inconsistent with efficient markets. So that chipped away 
at belief in market efficiency. Another thing, behavioral finance probably chipped away a little bit because it would then say, well, maybe why we have these anomalies is because people make decisions the way psychologists say they make them, not the way a few very mathematically oriented economists thought people should make decisions. I think, though, that the big blow to the faith in efficient markets came from markets themselves. You're old enough to have been around in 1999 when the stocks, especially internet stocks, just shot through the roof and NASDAQ just went soaring. And then in March of 2000, went tumbling down. And there were a few people who did some backflips trying to explain how that was consistent with efficient markets. But I think most of us looked at it and agreed that this had a little bit to do with irrational exuberance, that people had gotten too excited, that people had projected that stocks that had been going up would keep going up, that people had got drawn into the market who hadn't previously actively participated, that people started to borrow more and more in margin, which allowed them to buy more and more with less and less money, and that drove a lot of stocks up high. And one of the things that backs up that view is in 1999, I remember reading some interviews with mutual fund managers who stated on the side, I think these high-tech stocks are overvalued, but if I pull out of them, my clients are going to leave me. Mm-hmm. And there were examples of that. So back in summer of 1998, if you look at two funds, George Soros's fund, which was run by Stanley Druckenmiller, and I think it was the Tiger Fund, Julian Robertson's fund. Sources Fund always had a little bit more in high-tech stocks, but they were down in the 10 to 15, maybe 20% range. And then the fall of 98, so at the end of the summer, Julian Robertson said, these stocks are overvalued. I'm getting out. And Soros upped the ante. It might have been the summer of 99. But this is what happened. That basically, Soros's Fund, Druckenmiller, doubled down and bought more and more. And then the stocks that he already owned that were high-tech went up in value. And so... Eventually, his portfolio was up to almost 60% high-tech stocks, and Robinson's was down to virtually zero. Bear in mind, these are two really smart, really successful guys controlling a lot of money with nearly total discretion. They can invest in what they want to invest in. These are the informed investors of the efficient market story. When people tell a story about how the individuals don't matter because they all wash out and it's only the people with information that matter, These are two of those people, and they're placing opposite bets. And what happens in terms of, again, this agency issue? Well, the Tiger Fund was losing clients over and over and over again. Robinson tried to basically freeze clients out so that they couldn't withdraw more money. And finally, in March of 2000, he closed his fund. Meanwhile, in November and December of 1999, early January, money was pouring into Soros' fund. I think it was like $250 million. New money came in in November of 1999. And then in March, which was when Julian Robertson closed on his fund, NASDAQ and the high-tech stocks started to trade. About a month later, in April 2000, Stanley Druckenmiller was interviewed by Floyd Norris in the New York Times. And he basically said, we knew these stocks were overpriced. We thought it was the eighth inning And it turns out it was the ninth. They basically thought they could ride the wave a little bit longer before it would crash on them. So 
That was a belief in inefficiency. Julian Robertson thought it was the ninth when it was really the seventh. Yeah, that's right. They both got it wrong. And Julian Robertson was right when he said these stocks are overvalued by any sort of fundamental analysis, or maybe not any, but by the usual measures of fundamental analysis. But that didn't mean that the market wasn't going to keep going on. Was it Keynes that said the market could remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent? And that's basically what happened. I mean, Julian Robertson's still solvent, but the irrational tide pushed against him and knocked him out. So one got out too early, one stayed in too long. The key is I think they both probably agreed on fundamentals. There, was, there wasn't really any disagreement on fundamentals. Julian Robertson in that interview said, we knew these stocks were overvalued. So it was just a question of how long will it last? Now, that doesn't sound like two believers in efficient markets. They wouldn't be having that discussion. There wouldn't be, it's overvalued, should I get out now? It's overvalued, should I ride it a little longer? That wouldn't be the debate if they both believed that markets were entirely efficient. But do you think that retail investors on their own are capable of generating those types of movements? I mean, the institutional investors provide like an amplifier, right? Because they're doubling down on what the retail investors are doing, which kind of amplifies the sentiment. I don't really know the answer as to the, how much the retail investor can move the entire market. In the studies that I've done and the study that my colleagues have been recently working on, looking at Robinhood users, it's clear that the influence of retail investors is more pronounced for smaller stocks. So clearly their actions can affect smaller stocks much faster. I believe that overall sentiment does affect the market at large. Because if you think about what drives the market up or down, fundamentals are one thing. If everyone acknowledges that companies are going to be earning less in the future, probably prices go down. Taxes are something. Back when Trump was elected, the stock market went up and people were saying, well, why is it going up? Shouldn't all the uncertainty around his behavior be causing it to go down? But I think, and other people have said that, no, the thing that was pretty certain was that with a Republican president, a Republican Senate, and a Republican House of Representatives, there was a tax cut coming. And a corporate tax cut, the equity, makes the market worth more. Because you can think about it. a company earns money, it pays its employees something, it gives the government something, it pays its bondholders, and the rest is kept by the shareholders. If you pay your employees less, the shareholders earn more. If you pay the government less, the shareholders earn more. Generally, you have to pay, you know, what you pay the bondholders is usually not easy to manipulate. What I'm thinking is that the other thing that drives markets up is when more and more people put their money in the market. And one of the things that causes people to put their money in the market is that the market is going up. Not the only, but it has probably be tied to a story or to something. And then it tends to snowball a little bit. As I say, use of margin. The use of margin was way up in 1999. I believe it's probably high at the moment. The use of margin by individual investors. The willingness to borrow money so as to buy more stock. So the stock market is a secondary market. It's generally people trading stocks that already exists. If you want to buy it, a stock, you have to offer someone who already owns it enough money, they're willing to sell it. If they're the one who wants to sell, they have to sell it to you at a price where you're willing to buy. If there are a lot of people who want to buy and the people who currently own are kind of content, then that starts to drive the price up because the buyers have to 
bid up the price to get the people who own it to sell. But I think it's kind of a mischaracterization of both behavioral finance and kind of the world we see to think of the investor community as being divided up into these kind of irrational system one retail investors and these rational system two institutional investors. I think people at all levels are susceptible at some degree to these psychological biases that that you've studied so well. And I think there was one time when, when you and I ran a workshop for some high net worth financial advisors. We ran them through a bubble experiment. I think we got the biggest bubble that had ever been seen in the history of the literature. I don't know whether anybody else has tried to do that with financial advisors. And a lot of the hedge fund managers that I know, they, they really kind of work hard to put themselves through some kind of psychological hygiene process on a regular basis to alert themselves to any of the biases that they may be succumbing to. For modeling purposes, it might make sense to have these, these two separate actors, but there seems to be more continuity than that across these different communities. Is that a fair assessment? Well, another way of put it is that professional investors are also human. Yeah, that's another way of putting it, right? And they, they have many of the same biases. I think they have had more learning opportunity. So as you say, hedge fund managers who consciously try to recognize and to deal with their own biases, to be aware of them, to watch out for them. And certainly that helps. When I took behavioral decision theory as an undergraduate from Danny Kahneman, I remember him saying one day that although he and Amos had identified many of these biases and heuristics, that he fell prey to them or you know they affected his judgments every single day. So knowing that you have these biases is useful, but it doesn't instantly stop you from being influenced by them. I think institutional investors sometimes come up with checks, balances, protocols. For example, there's something called the disposition effect, and that was for the tendency of people to hold onto their losers and sell their their winning investments, sell things they had done well. The reason I started trying to get data on individual investors was I had read Statman and Shefferin's paper on the disposition effect recently, which was mostly a theory paper with a little empirical part, but it was mostly laying out the theory. And I thought, yeah, that's what people do. That's what I did when I had been an investor. And I thought I did that many times. I held on to my losers and told myself they're coming back. I sold my winners. Get evenitis. (laughs) Yeah. I was sitting in a class that George Ekeloff was teaching. George Ekeloff is famous for many reasons. He won a Nobel Prize in economics. He's also married to Janet Yellen. This was a macroeconomics class for PhD students. I was auditing. I was sitting in the back of the room, and I don't remember his exact words, but George said, he stopped for a moment. He said, those of you who are planning to do empirical work, Don't just take some existing worn-out database that people have written dozens of dissertations about and try to squeeze out one more dissertation. He said, find a question that you want to answer and figure out what data would allow you to answer that question. Then go out and get that data and answer the question. So at that point, I stopped listening to the lecture and started thinking about it. What a novel concept. Yeah. I started thinking, oh, I just read this paper about the disposition effect. I'm sure that's how people behave. That's how I behaved. Introspecting, I couldn't imagine that many people behave differently. And I thought, well, if I really want to show that, I should probably get data on individual investors because they're the most likely not to have compensated for the psychological biases. 
So I thought, okay, easy. I'm just going to go call up a brokerage firm and ask them for the trading records for their clients. I'll write my dissertation. It took 11 months. And even then, I got incredibly lucky. I wrote to dozens of firms. I called firms. I came very close twice. And eventually, I was able to get data. It took, they say, about 11 months. I eventually was able to get data on the trading records of individual investors from a discount brokerage firm. And I showed that people do, in fact, ordinary investors do display a pretty robust disposition effect. Many studies since mine have shown it for different groups of traders, even you know, for institutional investors, for people in different markets. But there are institutional investors who recognize this a long time ago. You could read books before Statman Shefford's paper. You could read books that would say, if you buy something and it goes down 10%, just sell it. Cut your losses and move on. And I think that advice was there because it pushed against the tendency to hold on. What you should really be asking yourself, absent transactions costs, a money manager should probably every day be saying, looking at every stock in the portfolio and saying, is this something I would buy today? If I didn't own this today, would I want this in the portfolio? The day that you decide, well, I would never buy it if I didn't own it, you should be thinking about selling it. But the psychology works against that. So I guess my short, my long, there's no short answer here. My long answer is, sure, institutional investors have the same psychology. They have had more time to learn as an institution, and they're more likely to have protocols. They're more likely to do things like I I get asked, you've been asked to sit down, talk to groups of institutional investors about what can I do to control my own biases? Yeah. So that advice to every morning, ask yourself, if you didn't own it, would you buy it? I actually tell my students to take that same approach to their jobs and to kind of everything else in their life. It's a little more difficult to accept in in some other areas of your life. The transaction costs might be a lot higher. The transactions cost to quitting your job because, you know, you didn't like yesterday's meeting could be high. On the other hand, if you've been miserable for the last year, I'd give some serious thought to finding another job. Going back to those days when you studied with Dan Kahneman, most of the insights that he had and his colleagues had were built around relatively small data sets, small experiments really done in the lab or surveys. And it really wasn't a huge data-centric, large-scale business. I mean, people weren't doing field experiments. They weren't looking at, at big data sets. So when you did this and you found this, how did the brokerage feel? I mean, to find out that, oh yeah, you know, we're, our customers are really doing poorly. It's kind of like doing a study on a, for a hospital and discovering that all their patients are getting sick in the hospital. I mean, the hospital probably isn't too happy about that. At least in a hospital, they might kind of go in and see if they can get rid of that problem. Brokerages, how do they respond to this? Do they take an interest in protecting their customers more? Or is this something that they wish they could push under the rug, you think? I think it's a multifaceted response. So I got two data sets from a large discount brokerage firm, a firm to which I am truly grateful. It's a very good firm, I think. I then met the CEO. We were together at a conference in New York. And we were talking, and I asked him if I could get a third data set. No one likes to keep the data sort of up to date. And he said to me something pretty close to this. He said, Professor Dean, we have a lot of respect for your research, but I just don't see what's in it for us. And I have to say, in the short run, he was certainly right. Now, one of the reasons I didn't name the firm from which I'd gotten the data 
in my papers was because I thought, well, people who read that, they're going to say, oh, investors at such and such a firm are overconfident, but I'm at this other firm, so this doesn't apply to me. And I think, uh-uh, this is going to apply across the board. As we said, maybe a little more to one group, a little less to another, but it generalizes. And people have subsequently shown that it generalizes using other data sets. So I think there was a concern by brokerage firms that it might make them look bad. Although, if you looked even at the material that that brokerage firm had at the time, the advice they gave was buy and hold mutual funds and even low-cost mutual funds. So they knew what the good advice was, and they gave that advice. And I think a little bit what it was, they're, they're in the awkward position of our most active investors are making us a lot of money. And we don't want to publicly say, oh, everybody should be trading really actively. Although I think maybe some firms come pretty close to that these days. But I don't think the firm I got data from wasn't promoting active trading. On the other hand, they couldn't help but notice it was making them a lot of money. So perhaps they didn't want to overly actively discourage it. I'd like to think that the research I've done and my colleagues and I have done has had some influence, but I don't think we've had a lot on individual investors. I had a reporter ask me in the late 90s, or maybe it was 2000 or so, Brad Barber and I had published a paper called Trading is Hazardous to Your Wealth. And this reporter said, well, do you think anybody's going to continue to trade actively after they see this paper? And my response was, I don't think a lot of individual investors subscribe to the Journal of Finance. If there's been any effect, it's slow and it trickles down. Well, I'm sure if you did a study on the, the data provided by, say, Caesar's Palace, you might discover that on average, the folks who walk in the doors are going to kind of walk out poor. Obviously, it's not a perfect analogy, but in Las Vegas, at least, they have regulations which mandate the odds within each of the hotels and casinos saying, you know, you can only lose 1% on average per bet and then they'll compare across the different casinos. Can you imagine something comparable which could maybe provide some investor protection? I mean, I'm thinking in particular of Robinhood right now just because it, it's really um, gamified investing in a new way and it's created a, an addictive, it's an addictive casino-like experience. And it's, it's brilliant. I mean, it's brilliant in terms of maximizing engagement, but it's not clear that their interests are necessarily aligned with their clients. No, it's not clear. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of like a dating app, right? A dating app never wants you to get married because then your engagement goes down. So now obviously they don't want you to lose all your money because then you can't trade, but it is sort of a new form of interface for which humans haven't really quite adapted. And, you know, discount brokerage was similar in the 90s, right, where you mentioned in, in one of your articles that I think you quantified the cost of trading in 1960s. I remember when my dad had a full service broker and he'd call her up during business hours and chat for about an hour to execute some odd lot trade. And it, would, it was extremely expensive, cumbersome, difficult. You really had to think hard before you, you made any kind of trade. Now it's pretty easy. I probably could have traded a couple hundred times while I was talking to you and you wouldn't even noticed Absolutely. I actually have a Robinhood app, mostly because I thought if I'm going to write about it, I should know something about it. So I opened up an account. Do you suppose the people who study crack cocaine have, have a similar, <laughs> feel a similar duty to try out the, uh, the product that they study? No comment on that. So what to do? Let's go back to efficient markets. It's sort of a strange thing because you think of science as most of us, at least, who've been brought up with a lot of respect for science and research, that Researchers should be interested in figuring out what's true, and thus it should be largely 
apolitical. And yet, so many things end up political. As we saw in the last year, the science around whether putting a mask on, having everyone wears a mask, drops down the transmission rate of the virus, which is irrefutable, became a big political issue. Climate change can turn out to be a political issue. And oddly enough, I mean, to me, oddly, there's a tension in finance. We're not talking about labor economics here or tax theory, just basic finance. There is this tension between the efficient markets belief on one side and, to a large extent, behavioral finance on another about consumer protection, investor protection. As you mentioned earlier, if markets are completely efficient, you can't really hurt yourself. You could get unlucky, but you can't systematically make bad investment choices. You might not follow portfolio theory. You might fail to diversify. That would be a mistake that you could make. But basically, you're not going to buy something that has been artificially driven way up in price and then be the sucker that ends up holding it when it crashes down. And that's on the efficient side. And furthermore, if you take the view that people are pretty rational when it comes to money, and this was the dominant view in academic finance, I think, in the 70s and the 80s with a little bit of, yeah, maybe not everyone. There are these people who probably are random in their trading, a little bit random, but basically people are pretty good, pretty rational, and certainly when it comes to money. If you take that view, the combination that markets are efficient and people are pretty smart, especially when it comes to their own money, you say, well, then leave people alone. Why get in their way? Why constrain them? You don't know what they want. They can want whatever they want. It's not for the government to get involved or regulators to get involved. If you think that people make systematic biases, that markets can become inefficient, especially cross, both as a whole, but cross-sectionally, like some stocks price get driven up and then drop, that who buys at the wrong time is somewhat systematic, that the same group of less experienced, perhaps more naive investors tend to be the ones who suffer, then there's more of an argument for having policies that protect people. I gave a talk in Beijing several years ago at China's equivalent of the SEC. And after my talk, I was talking to their head of research. And he asked me if I thought that investors, this idea that investors, there should be some sort of equivalent to a driver's license to invest. And I just said, I just can't see that happening in the U.S. Whether it would be a good idea for people who are investing to understand markets and investing more, yeah, of course it would be a good idea. We do have the qualified investor criteria, but first of all, it's not a competence requirement. And then secondly, it seems like the things that fall into the qualified investor bucket and the non-qualified investor bucket are not a function of risk, really. There's plenty of things that only qualified investors can get into that are fairly safe, like fixed income, private equity type stuff. And then there's a lot of things that unqualified investors can get into that are crazy, like shorting GameStop or something like this, right? Yeah, sure. As you say, on the qualified thing, it is to some extent just a measure of, do you have enough money that we don't feel we have to worry about you? We don't feel bad for you if you lose it all, right? Yes, or that you won't lose it all. Of course you could. So anyway, the guy I was talking to in Beijing, I said something like, well, maybe you guys could do that, but I, I just can't see the U.S. accepting this sort of constraint, like you have to pass a test to be an investor. And I'm not really sure 
I mean, it'd be great to have some basic education. I'm not sure it would do a phenomenal amount of good. His response, he said, I think it'd be even harder to do that here. And even though you think, well, the Chinese government can pretty much do what it wants, he just thought that the amount of enthusiasm that people had at the time getting into the markets, the Chinese markets have had some big ups and downs. He said that if you started to keep people out, there'd be a lot of anger. One interesting thing that you, you wrote about was how, in many ways, the stock market's not a substitute for other investments like real estate. It's really a substitute for things like the lottery. And so when a country introduces a lottery, the turnover in the, in the stock market goes down. Yeah. Investing in the stock market long-term is to me more analogous to investing in real estate long-term. Trading every day in the stock market, unless you are truly a professional, let's set them aside, but for individuals trading every day, that to me is closer to the lottery. And you're right. In the study that I mentioned before, where we looked at all Taiwanese investors, we had a little, almost an aside in that paper, where we took a look at when Taiwan instituted a national lottery. And that's not to say that you couldn't gamble in Taiwan before the national lottery. There were ways to gamble, but they instituted a national lottery. And we had a little model of expected trading on the Taiwanese stock exchange. And trading fell 25% when the lottery came in. And what we thought was going on is a lot of these people are trading and turnover was very high. The individual investor turnover would be three, four, five 500%. That means that every stock gets bought, say if it's 500%, every stock gets bought and sold. Every share of every stock on average gets bought and sold five times a year. So there were clearly a lot of speculation going on. And we thought, well, a bunch of people just said, oh, this week, this month, I'm going to try the lottery instead of gambling on the stock market. So the losses now, instead of going to the institutional investors, go to the government, right? Yes. Although the government in Taiwan was making a little money because they had a uh, transactions tax, a stamp tax, which I think Larry Summers briefly proposed in the U.S. once and got so much flack for it, never got mentioned again. Well, you know what this, this stock exchange that Eric Ries has proposed, I think, has a, some kind of incentive scheme to try and get people to hold on to their stock longer. I wouldn't want to let you go before asking you about your background and experience because you, you have kind of an unusual trajectory into academic finance. Most people don't kind of spend some time as a monk and a taxi cab driver and a, and a hitchhiker across Afghanistan. <laughs> and this show's called Unsiloed because I'm always very fascinated by people who have taken a circuitous intellectual journey. And I'm wondering if you see any connections between that intellectual journey early in your life and the, the kind of unique insights that you're able to find in your chosen discipline, which are in many ways crossing boundaries, leaning on other disciplines, and sometimes questioning the, the status quo in your discipline. All right. Well, let me correct one thing. I was in the Benedictine seminary. I dropped out before I became a monk. So it was my intention to become a monk, but I didn't make the grade. That's a very fine distinction. I think in today's world, if you watch a, a monk video on Calm, you know, you, you can call yourself a monk. <laughs> okay. I did drive a taxi in New York, 1970. I did hitchhike in Afghanistan, 1971, I think I was hitchhiking. And you started your own company, were you not, in software? Yes, a software, a statistical analysis software, although it was my friend's company. Let's see. Yeah, I dropped out of college, went back when I was 37, and wanted to get a PhD in psychology. 
I was told that because I had dropped out of my senior year, I dropped out of Carleton College five months before graduation, which upset my father to no end. Were you a psychology major there too? No, at Carleton, I actually never, ever formally declared a major. I was trying to major in creative writing, and then I ended up dropping out. I'd taken a lot of psychology classes, but I wasn't a psychology major. So I went back to Cal, and an admissions person I talked to told me that if I said I wanted to major in psychology, I was less likely to get admitted because there are so many psych majors. And I said, well, what about statistics? Because I'd been working in a statistical analysis software company, and I'd always liked math, and I liked statistics. I actually had a job as an actuarial trainee for three days in New York before I quit it and decided to drive a cab instead. So I got admitted to Cal. I majored in statistics, but I knew I wanted to get my PhD in psychology. And I figured a major in statistics with a lot of psych courses was not going to hurt me at all when I applied to a PhD program in psychology. I started taking psychology classes in addition to the stat classes. And that's when I met Danny Kahneman. I actually knew Kahneman was. I'd been at my friend's house, my friend who had the software company in Minneapolis, and my wife Martha was there. And David and I were talking, and after we'd been talking, she handed me a, a magazine, Discovery Magazine, and said, you should read this article. And it was an article about Kahneman Tversky and about the research. And I was like, really excited. I ordered their book from Cody's bookstore here in Berkeley. It took six weeks to get this book called Judgment Under Uncertainty. They were sort of an anthology, or they'd edited a bunch of papers, and I got their book. But Kahneman, when the book was published, had been at the University of British Columbia, so I didn't know he was at Berkeley. And after one semester at Berkeley, I decided I'm going to take some psych classes. I looked in the, the course catalog. I saw the name Kahneman, and it's not a very common name. And I thought, is that the Kahneman? I actually got on my bike. I saw he was teaching that afternoon, rode over to where he was teaching. I think it was in Duenel, I'm not sure, and walked in the back of the room and said, yeah, that's the guy. So I, I signed up for his course on judgment decision-making and got to know him quite well. And I was still thinking of getting a PhD in psychology, and I talked to him about it. He said, come over Saturday morning. At the time, he owned a house about four blocks from where I live, and I went over to talk to him, and he basically convinced me I should go into finance. He gave a bunch of reasons, including, he said, look, behavioral finance hasn't taken off, and if you're lucky, you'll get to be one of the first people working, not the first, but one of the early people working in a field. And he said, and if you're not lucky and it doesn't take out and doesn't work out, you'll have a PhD in finance, you'll go get a job in industry on Wall Street, and you'll have more money than if you'd been an academic. So there's a decent fallback plan. Yeah, versatile. Last question. When you were a cab driver, was your supply curve upward sloping? <laughs> What did I do if it rained? Yeah. <laughs> All right. I don't have a clear answer to that. I was doing it for the money, but also for experience. I was driving out of a garage. At the time, these cab companies owned the medallions and they had the cabs. You know, I know it changed later and people started to own their own medallions and their own cabs. But at the time, these cab companies owned a bunch of cabs. And I'd met a friend who worked at cab company. He got me a job at his company. I'd come, I'd show up around four o'clock. They'd give me the oldest, most beat up cab in the garage because I was the newest driver. And this was about 170th just near Jerome Avenue in the Bronx. And I would drive down to Manhattan every day because I wanted to see the big city. They wanted you to be out for between nine and 12 hours. If you stayed out over 12 hours, you're breaking a law. And if you didn't stay out nine hours, they thought you weren't worth their time. So I would drive to about one. So I was actually more concerned 
about if it was raining, I didn't hit something and go back. I just hit time. I went home. I'd go back to the cab company and then I had to hitchhike. I was living in New Rochelle and I would actually get out on the Cross Bronx Expressway at one or two in the morning and hitchhike back up. It was a little bit of a crazy summer. Maybe you can be an Uber driver and do some firsthand sentiment research. Well, this has been great, Terry. Thanks for coming. Thanks for talking. I should mention to everybody that Terry has a fantastic set of YouTube videos on on personal finance. We didn't even talk about that. And I think that's been occupying a lot of your time at Berkeley. He teaches the personal finance course to hundreds of students. And I think that that has probably made a big impact on on their lives. Even if they don't read the Journal of Finance, they, they can certainly watch your YouTube videos and take some important lessons from that. So thanks so much, Terry. Appreciate it. Thanks, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.